So if we claim to, to have a relationship with God, what we need to ask is, does he trust you? <laughs> Okay, here we go. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are trying to figure out what went wrong Yes, uh, in (laughs) our lives, uh, in our ministries, and in our understanding of God and the gospel, and we're we're reworking all of that best we can, and we are in a series today called Faith That Works, and the episode title for today is Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. It ain't. Nathan. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Ah, man. Well, sadly, Meatloaf passed away last year. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. If you don't know <laughs> Is that who Meatloaf was, then you know what? You need to go and learn. Oh, go to Spotify. Type the word Meatloaf, one word. Anyway, Meatloaf, one of his big hits was Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. Remember that one? I don't. Nope. <laughs> How old am I? Okay. Um... So it goes like this. He in it the, the hook or the refrain there is I want you, I need you, but there ain't no way I'm ever gonna love you. So don't be sad cuz 2 out of 3 ain't bad. Oh, uh, okay. Got it. And and so he's, you know, he's already given his heart to somebody else and he's explaining to this woman who for some reason wants to be with meatloaf which is not likely but anyway at least he wants her and he needs her Hmm. so she should be happy with that Mm -hmm. and um and i think a lot of relationships are like that Hmm. so is that what we would call codependency yeah maybe i don't know maybe we default to that i i kind of almost feel like more and more relationships maybe every relationship has some some of that in it um, apart from the gospel and maybe that's just how I see the world but I think why do people get into relationships why do people want to be in a a romantic relationship what do you think initially I think a lot of times it is about what am I going to get out of this yeah you know it, it can I think at its lowest level you know it can often be a marriage of convenience Right, yeah. or maybe not a marriage. Well, yeah, a relationship. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. And it, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think love is a multifaceted thing. We, we use that term a lot in music and other stuff, but rarely does it really get to the level of what I would call, <laughs> you know, love that causes us to hurt and suffer and push through these things that are painful and inconvenient. Yeah. Really, it's more like lust. I think uh, when the, the way it's popularly used, it's like it's just want, yeah. desire. Yeah, I want you. Yeah. 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 I mean, and and we are in a thing. There's this phenomenon called the hookup culture, where at least the sexual side uh, perhaps is more easily fulfilled um, for people. But I, I think that there's an emotional component both to the pursuit of of sexual. Uh, rendezvous or whatever you want to call it and hookups um, that there's an emotional need that's that someone's trying to fill in those sometimes and and at the same time that beyond that people want to be in a relationship but in a relationship with somebody they want to have a consistent relationship with somebody as well so we find ourselves in this scenario where we both want to 
just gratify our desires in the moment, um, shop around, we have an interest in novelty, something new, something unique. And at the same time, we're, we seem to have a craving to eventually settle down at least to have this long-term relationship that's meaningful and that we can invest ourselves entirely in what you know why why do people want that because they're costly right long-term relationships they they require a deep investment on our part why do we want that and yeah there it seems that it seems that there is a highly selfish component to that but relationships don't seem to operate very well on selfishness. So we want to get into a relationship because we have our own personal desires that we want met, emotional, physical, whatever. But to maintain the relationship requires selflessness. So if you think about like Hollywood couples, why doesn't it work? You know? It's like Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if y'all been following all Recent that. Recent train yeah. wreck. Right. They're obviously an extreme case, but we're very surprised if a Hollywood couple makes it much beyond, say, five years would be way at the outside. Why doesn't that work? These people have every advantage, right? They, they say the number one fight in, in couples, you know, in marriages or whatever is over money. So these people aren't fighting over money, probably. They have plenty of it. Um, why don't Why don't they work? Uh, everybody's celebrating this. It's in the public eye. There's going to be at least a little bit of buzz about them breaking up, and they're going to appear in the tabloids or whatever. So there's a cost to splitting, to parting ways, and they still do. Why doesn't it work? What do y'all think? Yeah, just thinking back, uh, what you said a minute ago, and I think it relates to this, is um, I think inherent in every relationship, we have a desire for the other person to be selfless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but um, at the same time, we don't know how to be selfless. And the relationship requires both parties to be mutually selfless yeah. in a sense that they can truly be there for each other. Otherwise, it's not a relationship, not a very deep one. Um, so we want that, but then we don't really know how to be selfless. And I, I think sure. these Hollywood couples, their their lifestyle is inherently selfish to, because they have so much. Yeah. Yeah, and they have they have all these options. Maybe they have other people that you know they think, well, I can just go to somebody else. You know, relationships are easy at first; they're harder as they go on. So people initiate relationships forge a bond and then it becomes hard and they decide that they want to just start a new one go through that that initial phase again because it's more exciting and fun and all of that they they have the energy for that next relationship because of that newness that novelty um i wonder if at times if relationships of all kinds don't succumb to kind of a a standoff like we as we do the calculus of our relationship and we say you know I think I'm giving more than my partner 
And so we wait for our partner to catch up. <laughs> you know, they're they're in a deficit as far as their relational equity and so we're gonna we're gonna withhold, we're gonna begin to drop back. Now there's a vacuum in the relationship. You know, we've created this vacuum and, and this vacuum is engineered for the partner to wake up and realize just how selfish they've been and, and they're gonna fill that void. You think that works very well? You think that happens a lot? I think it happens, happens a lot. lot. <laughs> yeah. Does it work? Yeah. No, no, it doesn't work because both parties begin to pull back and they're both waiting for the other person to fill the void. Yeah. You know, like I'll, I'll reciprocate as soon as you, mm-hmm. you know, step in and make up what's lacking here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone said that the two forms of like aggression are attack and withdrawal. So withdrawal is really a form of aggression. Yeah. It's just the opposite side of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really is an attack on the relationship to withdraw. Yeah. For sure. And so the relationship suffers from a trade imbalance, if you will, or trade deficit. There's there's this this unwillingness of both parties to invest into the, the common space and then that relationship begins to dwindle and die and um, maybe both sides blame the other or, you know, whatever. But at some point, people begin to believe that it's not worth it. This person is is not going to catch on. They're not going to begin to give as they should or whatever and move on to somebody else. It seems that that's how relationships work. Um, and it, the gospel, as I see it, is it seems to be saying um, that God absorbs that inequity, that he is um, willing in the relationship to um, to make up the deficit, um, and and he calls us to do that, and it's it's not this that he calls us to altruism, and I think that's a mistake. Uh, I, I saw on Facebook the other day that you know somebody in a it's in a religion group, but a lot of the, most of the people there are atheists, and uh, but there was a Christian, and and he put on, um, you know, Christianity is learning how to be completely selfless, and I'm like, well, there ain't gonna be no Christians then, um, because we just I don't think that it's possible for anybody to be completely selfless. To to be completely selfless is kind of gets back to Buddhism. You know, you were talking about it's this desire to to kind of disappear into the all so that we don't suffer. But then we really quit being an individual. We quit being a person. It is an it is a an extinguishing of our personhood for the sake of avoiding pain. So to me, that seems utterly selfish and insular um because now you can't you can't bring your unique personality and everything that about you is is a gift you can't bring that to anybody because you've you've tried to extinguish it because it was too painful you know to kind of push your own self your ego your soul whatever out into the relational marketplace you didn't want to do that anymore, and so you withdrew, and you just tried to squash this. Um, and that doesn't seem healthy to me, and, and I don't really want to pick on Buddhism, but the people I've known who've resorted to that because they've struggled with, say, anxiety and things like that, it never works for the long haul. Um, they can feel some relief in the moment because they've just withdrawn from the things that were making them anxious. 
but it also becomes so self-absorbed and insular that there's no resources to gain. There's no actual balm for the suffering uh, and the wounds and stuff that we take with us into the retreat. Um, and so that's why it's lacking, in my opinion. Um, but with the gospel, what I see is, so let's, let's say Jesus comes and he wants to forge a relationship with us, but we are terrible. <laughs> you know, like in, in John chapter 2, there's a great, and I, this is so convenient, in John chapter 2, there's a great commentary on our relationship with Jesus. It's it says in John two twenty three it says at the feast so Jesus is at the Passover in Jerusalem it says at the feast many saw his miracles and they believed in his name but Jesus would not and the translation says entrust himself to any of them but the but in the Greek it's very much like he wouldn't put his faith in them uh-huh. they put their faith in him but he wouldn't put his faith in them because he knew what people were like uh-huh. wow okay you talk about a dysfunctional relationship something that's one-sided right so uh, you know what do we do i mean jesus can't even forge a, a a good relationship here in this sinful world he's got to withhold himself right how's that fixed hmm. so in great that question instance, so in that yeah. instance that's it humanity isn't safe used in like modern therapeutic language yeah safe people that's one of the big themes uh surrounding yourself with safe people and so Jesus found that humanity wasn't safe. He couldn't. Right. He couldn't entrust himself to them. Right. Uh, he knew what was in man. I think is the trans, my translation right. says. Exactly. Um, so they didn't have a deep bond. Yeah. Though he was capable of of offering that, humanity wasn't capable of offering that. Right. Exactly. So and there seems that there's something broken in the relationship. I, I just love that that commentary is there because we really see Jesus is carrying it all. Like he came and, and he's going to be this glorious hero and we can look at him resplendent and glistening in the distance and all, you know, sing a song or whatever the heck it is we think we're supposed to do. Um, and, and yet there's some sort of a deficiency implied in that statement by John. You know, they put their faith in him, but he didn't put their, his faith in them. And it's like there, that there is not, that's not a relationship. So... If we claim to to have a relationship with God, what we need to ask is, does He trust you? <laughs> you know, and um, and and that may that may say something about the actual quality of our faith uh, as to whether He can trust us. And so you get over into chapter three, and we get one of those people. We we get you know we get this mass of people in this commentary. And it says, hey, you know, all these people in Jerusalem, they put their faith in him, but he couldn't trust them. And then you get, and one of them was a guy named Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. And he says, he essentially says what John said about the people. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher sent from God because nobody can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So he expresses that faith that these people in Jerusalem had, and he actually speaks on their behalf. We know. And then Jesus turns to him and says what? Unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, yeah, you have no part of me. You can't see, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So, what was wrong with the people that Jesus couldn't put His faith in them? They weren't born from above. They weren't born from again. They were just born of this earth. They just had yeah. the earthly human resources. Yeah. Well, how are they going to get born again? Water and the Spirit. Okay. 
Well, how does that become available? Um, later in that chapter, it's either Jesus talking, or but I really think it's John commenting at that point. Isn't it the same conversation where he we says, un- where he it's says, it's unclear as whether it's Jesus or whether it's John. Yeah, yeah it's it always seemed to me, passage. yeah, yeah, it's it's whether it's red letter or not, but it's 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 there that it leads into the conversation where Jesus says, "For God so loved the world that He right. gave His only begotten Son, mm-hmm. that whoever believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life." Yeah, yeah. So how does God overcome this imbalance? You know, uh, how does Jesus participate in overcoming this imbalance? It, it seems to be, at least for Jesus, in trusting the Father, that there has to be a third element. There has to be that from above. See, if it's all down here, I mean, there, the, the, even, even the idea, you must be born again, right? But, the, but there's a double entendre there. John likes to use these words that have two meanings, and then he employs them to mean both. And he unpacks both meanings. And so that word um, is from above. And it would mean to do it again, like we say, from the top. Let's take it from the top. Mm-hmm. Well, they said, well, let's go from above. So mm-hmm. that means let's start over. Let's let's mm-hmm. go, you know, let's go back to the very beginning, which is why there's this confusion. Nicodemus is like, how am I going to start completely over? Can I get back into my mom? Right? Mm-hmm. So the, the nuance there, but Jesus is saying that this, that this from the top is literally from another realm, that we have to get these resources from outside of the earth. And I think that anybody that's been in a relationship realizes that, that, that the confines, the boundaries of that relationship uh, within them are finite resources, that, that, and that those are leaking out of the relationship. It's not that I give to you, let's say I give five relational credits to you and you receive five relational credits and then you give back five relational credits to me, but that I, I cast out five relational credits, but two fall out because you don't appreciate it. You don't interpret it. You don't realize what it costs me. And so two of those credits just fall out of the relationship and you collect three credits and you think, well, thanks, but I remember last time I gave you four credits, but I don't those four credits, I only gained two. So I feel like you're behind and you feel like I'm behind. And now next week, I'm not going to put anything in the relationship and neither are you. And now we can't get along. Right. Yeah. But what if this isn't a finite system? What if, the, what if there is a from above component to the relationships? Rather than my relationships being on the basis of what I have to give or what, my, or what the other person in the relationship has to give, there's a third party that yes. is providing resources in this, this relationship. Exactly. And so I, I think modeled in Christ. So when Christ offers himself he's doing it for our sake he loves us but he's also doing it in obedience to the father and you get down to his prayer in john 17 and his prayer is very instructive because he says i've glorified you on the earth right now glorify me with the glory that i had with you before the world was jesus isn't he's not an altruist and he's not calling us to altruism. Altruism is a, is a self-congratulatory modernist concept that doesn't exist. Um, and anywhere it, it pretends to exist, you have 
some sort of an egomaniac with a God complex. Because only God can be truly altruistic because God is so fully self-contained and infinite that altruism isn't something that, that ex, you know, exhausts him or he expends upon. God is, is operating on a different principle. The rest of us, when we attempt or we um, feign to be altruistic or we presume to be, we are generally just congratulating ourselves. We are taking kind of this martyr complex and it becomes really unhealthy, I think, in relationships. If you've ever known anybody that is always like, I'm the one, I'm always, you know, I'm just going to take the lowest place and I'm going to serve. But, but they do it out of this sense that that's their role in, in the thing, that they're building an, um, a persona. And that's super unhealthy. It's not the real them. And then they hide behind that persona and underneath that develop all kinds of hostility and hatred for everybody around them. And it pops out in weird ways. We really do have to have an expectation, you know, of, of give to get quid pro quo to be healthy. It's just that we can offload that to God where there is the perceived deficiencies just as Jesus did for us. Let's talk about that. We have to have we have to give in order to get. It's built into our nature, I think is what you're saying. Yeah. But we uh, have the opportunity to um, tr- in, to trust to entrust to God our need to mm. get in re- uh, for what we give. Right. Uh, so there's a really powerful psalm, uh, you know, in Psalm 16, which is also a very messianic psalm. But it says, Lord, you are my portion and cup. And so you remember when you guys leave me with all the dishes to do in the morning and I say, Lord, you are my portion and my cup. Mm -hmm. Um, So I could say, oh, I'm the martyr. I'm always the servant. I always had to do the most here. And and I could congratulate myself as being the the servant here. Um, Or, and, and that's unhealthy. That's unhealthy for me. It's not good for the relationship. Or I can say, this is my opportunity to have more Jesus to truly have some fellowship with him because he's there because he's in that space he offers me intimacy with himself and so i become selfishly selfless <laughs> in that i'm i'm greedy for fellowship with him i'm greedy for companionship with him i'm greedy for the grace that flows into a moment with him and being like him and so you're the suckers and I'm the winner. And you know what I'm saying? That, that, that is, that's built into the gospel that there is a selfish selflessness so that it, when people in the gospel give or serve, they're doing it with a genuine delight. And to me, that looks a whole lot more like love than I guess I'll do this for you, you piece of crap. Like, People eventually develop that resentment if their role is to serve. Um, and, and certainly we, we want mutuality in the relationships and stuff, but we all contribute different things. There's always going to be at least some visible inequity, some objective inequity, and certainly some subjective inequity. But if we're all responding to this third presence, then there are, there are the resources for us to joyfully give, to not become exhausted or resentful, and to, to clearly communicate our boundaries, 
because my worth or my well-being is not in your hands. So we can get away from the codependency. We can say, hey, you know, when you do this, I feel invalidated. I feel like you're mistreating me or something in some way. We can be clear about that. We don't have to be hostile with it. We can we can go to the other person out of a concern and a desire to fix the relationship um, because we've been set free from needing that person. Um, we can truly love them because we've been set free from having to have equity as we perceive it. We can continue to invest. Yeah, so I'm seeing two dynamics there in terms of a healthy relationship. One is um, what we lack in certain relationships, we then look to, to receive from the Lord. Um, so if, if I feel like I'm lacking a certain amount of love or encouragement or whatever it is that I would like to get out of my earthly relationships, um, I can always go to the Lord and receive those things. Um, but also, <clears throat> you know, there is the ability for us to also give to others where they lack because yeah. we're also receiving from the Lord these things. We find that we can, um, we're not having to, it's like we have a surplus. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like, because I've received what I, I need uh, in these relationships from the Lord, I'm also now free to give something that was never really mine to start out with. Right. Get back to John three sixteen. What motivated God to send his son? To give his son. Um, it wasn't a need. It wasn't like, man, it's lonely around here, or if I just had a big crowd to applaud me, that there's this agape love that motivates God to send his son. Well, what is that? Um, how does it motivate? Here's the thing is, is that we live in, this will give you an idea of how broken our reality is, is that we, we live in a reality where if, if people had everything that they needed, like every person had abundance, that we would assume that nobody would do any good things, that they would all just retreat into their own life and attend to their own desires. And that's probably true. That, that we presume and that we require in this world, this reality, this present system, this system needs deficiency. It needs lack. It requires that people have, uh, you know, are missing something and that, that every motive that we can imagine is a, 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 a pursuit of, of filling that void of somehow fixing that deficiency. It's hard to, for us to imagine that, uh, let's say an eternal being who exists as three persons in perfect relationship and has no needs, what would ever cause that being to ever do anything? It's hard to imagine it for us because that's how broken our reality is that we can't even fathom it. And yet that's not the way life was ever supposed to be. We assume that that's how it must be. And what the gospel declares is that was never the intention, that that is sickness, that that is brokenness, that the deficiency orientation, that a matter of lack is what's broken. That when we do things out of deficiency or lack, that we are participating in the world system, 
because the gospel, that shalom, that the divine life of the Trinity is overflow. Yeah, and that's interesting because, you know, that causes me to think how often, you know, you, even in our, in our church or, you know, Christendom, we project needs onto God. Somehow God needs our service. Somehow God needs um, our worship. Uh, that he's, our money. He yeah, our money. money. Yeah, he's, definitely, <laughs> he's definitely short on cash. Yeah, and cash he, for a long time. yeah, and and we project these things onto God. That if God is truly God, then he's lacking nothing. Yes. Well, and that's what he wants for us. Think about in James. He 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 talks about count it all joy when you fall into various trials. For what do the trials do? They work patience, and then he says, "Let patience have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing." Which is like God. Exactly. That God is inviting us to be like him. And so my favorite, my favorite vignette for this or, or story is Jacob, right? So Jacob's a terrible person, and he's the founder of this nation, that the chosen people. He's like the worst. You know, I just felt so bad because, you know, Jaden has to read these stories about Jacob and Esau, and here's this hunter and this guy who's a man of his word, and he doesn't care about all this indoor girl stuff and he's the bad guy uh even though he never does anything bad and then you have this namby pamby mama's boy who likes to stay inside and he's smooth and you know he's a weasel and he's the hmm. one who gets to be the founder of the nation okay he's a weasel but but hmm. why is he why is he a weasel because um he's fighting for survival he's fighting for his place he sees that there he is in a one down relationship with Esau. He sees that he is in a combative re relationship with Laban, um, that there's lack in his life. When he meets God and he has this wrestling match with him, you know, God doesn't isn't like there, there, Jacob. I know life's hard. God's like, you know, I'm gonna kick your butt. And and so he grabs him <laughs> and, and they have this wrestling match, and it's just a beautiful, it's a beautiful story. Um at the end of it, he he does meet Esau and Man, we miss these nuances. <laughs> it says that when his brother Esau saw him in the distance, he ran to him and fell on his neck and hugged him and welcomed him. Does that sound like somebody else? The, the father, the right. prodigal son. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, yep. here comes Esau, man. He's coming with 400 men. You know what he's about. Mm -hmm. And 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 it, it's Esau is really a depiction of how we view God. Like, man, I can't get near him. I know I've wronged him. He has the, the means to wipe me out and mm -hmm. everything I have. And so Esau is kind of, ironically, an, uh, a, a theophany mm -hmm. in this. Mm -hmm. and, and, and he welcomes Jacob, and then Jacob says this. He says, he says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me, I have all I need. Mm -hmm. From that moment on, Jacob, now Israel, never tried to screw anybody over again. Mm -hmm. That that was his conversion moment. And, and he went from somebody who was always at odds with others to somebody who could say, honestly, I have all I need. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And it's that person, it's that, that the nation is predicated on that statement, I believe, that the economy of the kingdom is predicated on honestly being able to say that. And isn't that what we want from our relationships? Yeah, well, it that is. That we can enter a relationship and say, I have all that I need. I am, 
confident. I'm I am full of um, healthy self-image and, and and full of love, so that I I can enter in and give this to you, and it changes the dynamic completely. And and I think that we Jesus is envisioning a church, the body of Christ, where we are modeling the trinity that you described earlier where we're each giving from that place of wholeness and also contributing to one another's wholeness in the in so doing yeah and and yet when when we do it doesn't take away from us that both gain because this grace that flows into the breach into the vacuum it's like if i give to you then god gives to me and nobody's ever running short uh, of anything yeah. in that second Corinthians and Paul's like he, he talks about the grace given to the Macedonian church and that grace was the ability to give their money and um, to the Corinthians and not to an institution but to their needy brethren and that there is this overflowing joy that comes from giving that the gift is the generosity that the gift is the is the joy and the fellowship with god that comes when we give it you know when it, when he gets to the end of this discussion of the grace of god as it's flowing and as it's creating generosity and as it is expressing itself through dollars through actual money traveling to other people he gets to the end of it and he says um Praise be to God for his indescribable gift. He's hmm. really speaking of this dynamic of grace. Because we're not given grace just to absorb it, right? We're given grace to be gracious. And as we're gracious, then grace flows into us again. And we're gracious again. And we begin to just bathe in an environment of grace. And what more could any of us want? Hmm. That sounds like a whole new series in itself. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you next time.